Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So before we go into the main topic of continuing our series on tyranny, I want to study a passage of the day that is somewhat related to that topic. And that passage today is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Some of you might be very familiar with this passage. It's the Tower of Babel passage. Uh, And so let's go ahead and look at that using the English Standard Version, and then we'll discuss. So, Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language." so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. All right, so that passage. Why is this significant in the study of tyranny? Well, just to give a little bit of historical context, the Tower of Babel begins after the flood has subsided, and Noah's family has settled, and they've begun to repopulate the earth, Um, and they find this plane that they think is a good place for a building project, and they decide that instead of dispersing over the face of the earth, they're going to make a name for themselves. So what we see here is that the goal of mankind is to glorify itself without any reference to God, to make a name for mankind. They're one language, they're one family, one mission, and one purpose. Now, why a tower? Well, not so much today, but in those days, the glory and grandeur of a building was signified by its height. And the height, the tallest building, was pretty much indicative of what the people valued, what was most important to the people. And so in the ancient world, a tower... Uh, was a symbol of one's uh, stature, glory, power, wealth, all those things. Uh, The biggest building that you could build, right? Something glorious and grand. But also, there is a religious aspect to it, the concept of heaven and earth touching and meeting. Some theologians and biblical commentators argue that the Garden of Eden would have been on top of a mountain or some kind of plateau. The reason why they argue this is because in Genesis, it's described that rivers flow out of Eden. And, and since water goes downhill, the argument is that the source of the waters was the Garden of Eden, and it flowed outward and down. And so in the sense, where heaven and earth met, where God dwelled with man, is where the mountains are, where the sky touches the earth. So the concept of heaven and earth uniting and being one 
and and man being in God's presence, um, that concept ties into why they would build a tower and why a lot of religious buildings in the ancient world were towers. They they kind of depicted mountains, if you will. And, and this becomes a, an issue later on with the high places in Israel. The pagan nations, the Canaanites, they worshipped on the high places, basically the highest uh, the highest peak in the area is where they believed that man could commune with God. So anyways, um, there's that religious aspect as to why a tower would reach heaven. But also, um, some have argued that it's an attempt to avoid God's judgment. God had just flooded the earth, and so to build a tower that reaches into the heavens is to essentially... Uh, protect yourself from further floods. Even though God had already promised never to flood the earth again, um, they weren't believing that promise, and they wanted to build something that would preserve them from another potential flood. Um, So there's that in his wrath, but also to refuse uh, God's command. So this one is very explicit. They did not want to be dispersed over the whole earth. But God had commanded them, just like he had commanded Adam, to um, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So they're supposed to go out and subdue the earth and fill the earth and take dominion as servants of God. But they don't want to do that. They don't want to be dispersed. They want to stay in one place and glorify themselves and, and have a name for themselves. So how do we apply this, this passage here? Well, humanity, mankind, dreams of glory and unity. And part of this is probably a result of, of the fall, uh, where things used to be wonderful. We have a taste of that, a sense of things are broken, things aren't right. There used to be, uh, it used to be good, it used to be perfect. And we have dreams of this unity and glory of mankind all coming together as one family accomplishing anything that we put our minds to without any difficulty or, or, or fighting or conflict, but harmony and peace, right? But without God at the center of it, it's nothing more than the Tower of Babel. So it all looks good and sounds good, ideas of, you know, United Nations or a one-world government all coming together and holding hands, um, but these are utopian attempts. And any attempt to make utopia to bring heaven on earth or to turn earth into a type of heaven um, is not going to work. Only God is the one that can save the world. And that's the message of the whole scriptures is that mankind can neither save himself nor save the world. Only God can save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And we see, interestingly enough, that in the book of Acts, the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is kind of a reversal of Babel. In Babel, God, they all have one language, they can understand each other, and God confuses them and spreads them out across the land, disperses them. But in Pentecost, we have all these people gathering together from across the globe, and all these different nations gathering together in Jerusalem, and they all can understand each other with the tongues of fire, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is God's doing. 
not man's doing. And that's an important point to keep in mind as we look into the topic of tyranny. So that is our passage of the day. Now, this is part three of our series on tyranny. Again, don't know how long this is going to be, but uh, we'll just keep going until we come to some sort of end that makes sense. So last time we looked at how tyranny begins. Why, why do they rise up? How do tyrants get into the positions of authority that they're in? Um, we looked at some historical examples such as Hitler in Nazi Germany and how the people of Germany viewed him as a savior, as a messianic figure. Um, and so, so they didn't think that he was a bad guy. Uh, maybe a few people at first came to realize it, and, and sooner, sooner or later, more people were convinced that something was wrong. But for quite a while, um, he was viewed with great approval. And last week, we also looked at some um, fictional stories that depict tyranny, looked at The Walking Dead. We also looked at John Milton's Paradise Lost. And what I wanted to do today is look at what I consider to be some of the, maybe the three best uh, dystopian novels. There's a whole bunch out there, by the way, or at least maybe not the three best. I haven't read them all that, that are available, but the, the top three that stand out in my mind of all that I've read, I see them as setting the, setting the bar for books on tyranny and totalitarianism and dystopia. So they are 1984, Brave New World, and This Perfect Day. Now I'm going to try to get through, try to get through them all today. My intent here is to show some of the common themes that we see in these books as to as to about what tyranny looks like and and where do they have similarities, where do they have some differences, and how do these concepts reflect reality and some of the things that we should be concerned about in our own culture and society. So fiction has that ability to bring to our minds things that could become problems or you know if certain things continue a certain way this might be what it comes down to. This might be what it looks like in the future. So fiction can serve as a warning. Um, it can also serve as a predictor as to how things might look in the future with advanced technology and things like that. But um, there's something very powerful about uh, fiction, and these particular stories, I think, are worth looking at. So I'm not going to go through all of them in detail, uh, bit by bit, but I want to look at the basic premise of each of the uh, each of the stories, and I want to spend most of the time looking at the discussions between the hero and the villain. So in almost all of these books, any book that involves some kind of dystopia or, or tyranny, there's usually some kind of a climax where the hero of the story meets the ultimate villain or the 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 head behind all of the uh, all of the difficulty, all of the evil, and they have a conversation. And that's where you really, I think, see um, the underworkings of what's going on here, and you see the concepts that could become problematic in our own day in reality if we're not careful. So just let me give you an example with the first book, uh, Brave New World. I'm kind of going through chronologically with Brave New World being written before 1984 and This Perfect Day. I think Brave New World was written in the 30s. But 
in this book, in this story, uh, the whole world is divided up into a caste system. And they're labeled alphas, bravos, charlies, deltas, epsilons, things like that. The alphas are the leaders or the controllers of society. And all the lower castes, they're purposefully hindered in development. So there are no more families. There's no more husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. Children are, uh, are, are grown and developed uh, in public by the government. But the government takes care of all of that. So there's no more family. So during their development, the children are purposely hindered. Uh, those who are hindered mentally and developmentally, um, they might become an epsilon or a delta, and they just do very menial labor. Um, and they don't really think much beyond that. They're, they're content with being janitors and trash collectors and things like that. Now, everybody, all the castes, are kept happy and distracted, but primarily the lower castes um, by watching what's called the feelies in the book, which are just movies, just useless or just pure entertainment movies, okay? Nothing really substantial in them, so they keep people distracted, particularly the lower castes, and everyone takes a drug called Soma, which is a a euphoric-inducing drug. It just makes everybody happy and feels good, makes you feel like a good person. It completely eradicates all the problems in the world, at least for a time. So they take these drugs regularly. Uh, they need to escape from and to forget the problems of the world or, or their position in life. And also, in this society, no one's ever alone. So Everyone belongs to everyone else. You can, you can have relationships with anybody. Uh, there's no marriage, of course, but you can you can engage in physical pleasure with anyone. Um, there are no families. There's no unplanned children. Um, you don't. You belong to everybody, essentially, and people get whatever they want. Um, now, there's an, there's an interesting part where the where one of the, where the villain, the controller that the hero talks to says that people get what they want, but they never want what they can't get. So, yes, if you want something, you get it, but but if you can't get it, the system has set it up so that you never actually want it. You stay distracted. You stay focused on only the things that they want you to have. Um, you never desire things that you can't actually get because that causes disruption. It causes a lack of harmony. So the hero is a man called Savage who grew up in the outside of the world, uh, some kind of island or reservation or some kind of place that was not under the control of the global uh, system. So he comes to this civilized world and he attempts to free the people. He sees what's going on. He gets upset about it. He wants them to be free. These, these laborers, uh, he goes to the, a group of deltas and he um, tells them that they're free, tells them to throw off their chains and to be free, and he throws all the Soma drug out the window. Now, when he does that, though, he thinks that, they're, that he's you know, setting them free from this drug addiction that they have, this dependency that they have, but they actually get angry at him for getting rid of their drug. That's their, that's their happiness. That's their joy. So when he does that, bad things happen. 
the police are called in, and then Savage is brought before the controller. Now, the controller's name in this book, or one of the controller's name is Mustafa Mond, and this conversation that they have is kind of the climax of the story. So Mustafa explains to the Savage what world they've built. Um, First, he points out that old things are bad. Anything that's old, he calls it pornographic. It's bad. People can't understand it. Um, the new world is more stable. It's not tragic. And people are are happy with what they have. Um, and here's, I'm just going to read a few quotes here and there to kind of highlight what they're talking about. So here's what the controller says. The world's stable now. People are happy. They get what they want. And they never want what they can't get. They're well off. They're safe. They're never ill. They're not afraid of death. They're blissfully ignorant of passion and old age. They are plagued with no mothers or fathers. They've got no wives or children or lovers to feel strongly about. They're so conditioned that they practically can't help behaving as they ought to behave. And if anything should go wrong, there's Soma. So that's what the controller's pointing out to, to the savage. Uh, people are happy. There's, they don't understand the concept of liberty, this thing that you, that you speak of. So then he goes on to talk about how the control of society requires a caste system. Alphas, the, the leaders, the, the brainiacs, the people who are the most free, they can't do epsilon work. Um, they would be angry and discontent with that. So in the caste system, everyone likes the work that they've been assigned, and they're content with it. And then third, he goes on to say that science must be limited and controlled. So even though this this society is very scientific and claims to be the epitome of science, they make it clear that some science is not allowed. And here is what uh, the controller, Mustafa Mann, says about it. He says, I was a pretty good physicist in my time. Too good. Good enough to realize that all our science is just a cookery book with an orthodox theory of cooking that nobody's allowed to question and a list of recipes that mustn't be added to except by special permission from the head cook. I'm the head cook now. So basically he's saying that there are some things that can't be known. There are some areas of science that must be purposely uh, limited. Science is controlled and that which is approved by the head cook, that is the allowable science. Nothing else is allowed. There's still an orthodoxy and there's still a heresy. They continue their discussion and the savage points out that people, you can't stop them thinking about death and God when they are alone. And he acknowledges that, the controller acknowledges that, and that's why he says they don't allow for people to have a time of self-reflection. So here's what he says when the savage points that out. Uh, The controller says, but people are never alone now. We make them hate solitude, and we arrange their lives so that it's almost impossible for them ever to have it. Okay, so they're never allowed for loneliness. Always staying busy, always staying entertained, always staying distracted, always focused on pleasure. And he doesn't want people to think about God. Self-indulgence is needed. And he points out that self-indulgence, giving people what they want, is the goal up to the limit of hygiene and economics. So there is a limit, but it's only based on hygiene 
keeping diseases at bay and economics, keeping, you know, keeping the, the machine going, right? Any sense of virtue is not necessary and can be found in the drug, Soma. And he, he describes Soma as Christianity without tears. You can feel virtuous, you can feel brave, you can feel courageous, but you don't actually have to do anything. You don't actually have to be brave or be courageous. You don't actually have to go through any suffering. Uh, the goal is indulgence and self-indulgence. And he goes on to uh, say uh, that they got rid of annoying things like mosquitoes and flies. All of that has been eliminated. And of course, the savage is, is, criticizes him for that, basically saying that's all you ever do is get rid of things that are uncomfortable instead of learning to live with it that's all you really care about and so the end goal from the controller's mind is happiness for the whole society and that's where he says truth is not really important and this is how he explains it to the savage universal happiness keeps the wheel steadily turning truth and beauty can't and of course whenever the masses seize political power then it was happiness rather than truth and beauty that mattered and he goes on to talk about how at first they did allow for unrestricted scientific research, but they came to realize that it was causing more problems than actually bringing about happiness. So he says, quote, people were ready to have even their appetites controlled, anything for a quiet life. We've gone on controlling ever since. It hasn't been very good for truth, of course, but it's been very good for happiness. One can't have something for nothing. Happiness has got to be paid for. So... The end goal in this brave new world is happiness, pleasure, and entertainment. And anything else is really not useful and actually pornographic and disruptive. And that's how they keep people under control. So that is essentially what we see in Brave New World. Now, I want to then jump into the next book, 1984. Um, and in this book, which is particularly well-known. And in this book, the hero is named Winston, and his job is to correct history. So he goes through old newspaper articles, books, pictures, and he edits them to make sure that history is erased. So if, if a word has changed or if a person has been deemed no longer to exist, his job is to go through the records and make sure that that person never existed. And everyone is kept under control by fear. The party is in control. The whole, the, everything's about the party. Um, and Big Brother is the figurehead of this party. Now, eventually, Winston meets a girl named Julia, and they form a relationship, and they attempt to join the resistance. And eventually, their endeavors bring them into contact with a man named O'Brien, who claims to be one of the leaders of the resistance. Now, at the end of the day, he actually just works for the party. And his job is to um, uncover and uproot those people who are attempting to undermine the party. So eventually, Winston and Julia are arrested and tortured and re-educated. And again, there is a cl climactic conversation between Winston and O'Brien, where O'Brien argues that it's the party that determines truth and knowledge. This party, history only exists in records and in memory. And so if you control the records, and if you control people's memories, then you can control history. Now, Winston, of course, he says, well, 
you can control the records, but you can't control the memories. You can't stop people from remembering things. And O'Brien argues, well, their goal is to get you, the individual, to control yourself. You are going to purposely remember things differently. You're going to forget something. You're going to willingly do it for the party. And he goes on to talk about uh, that the party's job is to cure people and to make them sane, to align them with the party, to make them love the party, to love Big Brother. And in the past, dictatorships tried to force people to conform outwardly, but a lot of people just refused and they ended up getting martyred. They were just killed and they went to the executioner still you know, unconvinced in their mind, still rebellious in their mind. And O'Brien points out that in this, the new method is converting them. They're actually going to convert the person to the party. Um, they're never going to allow a person to die a heretic or to die as a martyr. They're going to convert them from an enemy to an ally, to a friend. When Winston says, you know, you have not controlled my mind, uh, O'Brien says, no, you have not controlled it. That's what has brought you here. You are here because you have failed in humility, in self-discipline. You would not make the act of submission, which is the price of sanity. You prefer to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality. So basically alienating him. And then he O'Brien argues that reality is determined by the party. Two plus two can sometimes equal five or three. And his job is to uh, make him sane, to fix him. He says, sometimes Winston, sometimes they are five. Sometimes they are three. Sometimes they are all of them at once. You must try harder. It is not easy to become sane. Now, during this entire time, he's being tortured. Um, and Winston wants to see five fingers, but he, 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 at first he can't. He, his mind refuses to acknowledge that there's five when O'Brien's only holding up four fingers. Eventually, Winston says he doesn't know how many fingers are being held up because the pain is so high and his mind is is just going crazy and O'Brien is, is very happy with that. So he goes on to talk about that he wants to make people sane, he wants to make all confessions true, there are no such thing as martyrs, they want to convert the heretic. And he basically argues that the party destroys humanity and remakes it in its image. Okay, so the party is trying to tear down humanity. He talks about they're trying to find ways to get rid of mother and father, to get rid of um, you know, sexual desires, to get rid of these, to, to undo these things that are viewed as problems amongst humanity and to remake mankind in its image, in the party's image. And he goes on to use one of the more famous lines where he tells Winston that if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on the human face forever. So that is what the purpose of the party is, to just have complete control, to have absolute power, to remake mankind in its image, and to rewrite history, um, and to rewrite reality, in fact, and to determine what is true and is not true. So that is essentially the 1984 story. I'm not going to spoil what happens after that. I've already spoiled enough. So let me finish by looking at the book, This Perfect Day. Now, I think this one was written in the 60s, but in this story, the whole world is managed by a giant supercomputer. So it's called the Universal Computer, or Unicomp. 
and they call it uni for short, you and I. And every decision is made by this computer. It's it's the computer's job is to make everything as efficient as possible, maximum efficiency. So everything is determined by the computer. What people eat, how many people are born, when they die, what job they have, where they can go, what they can do. And all of mankind is called the family. So everyone's called a brother and a sister. And so people wear this bracelet and wherever they want to go somewhere, they have to put the bracelet up to the scanner and the computer decides whether to let them in or not. And if they if it says no, then that means that that was not the most efficient or right decision. So everything that they do, anything, anytime they want to get food, the computer determines it all. And they give thanks to this computer. So whenever you get something from someone, you would you might say thank you, and he says no no thank uni, thank the computer. People also have to take drugs. Now these drugs are administered kind of on a monthly basis or a regular basis, and it keeps them calm, under control, and it reduces their affections and their sex drive. So, you know, there's no real marriage per se. The computer pairs people together to have children, and the computer pairs people to to have intimacy with on a regular basis, but that's just to keep the urges at bay. Now, the hero of the story is a is a, a man named Chip, um, and he ends up trying to destroy the supercomputer. He wants to set mankind free. He ends up on an island, uh, and the islands contain people who are not part of the family, who refuse to be controlled by the computer. Now, there's not that many of them left, and the computer lets them live, um, lets the islands survive. Uh, But Chip decides he wants to attack the computer. He wants to launch uh, a sneak attack using explosives and get in there and blow up the servers and take down the whole computer. And he knows where the real servers are located. His grandfather had showed had showed him that. So, but just when he's about to have success, and this is a spoiler, uh, he's captured. Uh, he's betrayed by one of his teammates because the teammate actually works for the computer for Unicomp. But you come to find out that there is actually a high council of people that work with the computer. So it's not just the supercomputer running everything. There is an elite group of humans that corrects and sometimes reprograms Unicomp when changes need to be made. So let's say something has to be decided upon. The computer will make a suggestion, will make a, a decision, and the high council of, of people, uh, they can decide whether to go with the computer's suggestion or to go a different path. So there is still human control behind the computer, although for the most part, the computer runs everything. Um, And so the hero, Chip, realizes that all this is this one big setup. Everything was planned because the high council is always trying to recruit the best and the brightest people, those who are capable enough to actually get close to destroying the computer, um, and those people are recruited to become part of the council and maybe eventually the high council. So that's this elite group of humans. Now, they have no age limits, and they're denied nothing. They can have wine and lobster and all kinds of good stuff. And whereas everyone else is killed off at age 62 because the computer decided that that's the most efficient um, age to kill people off at, 
the elite people, the council, they can live as long as they want to. Um, and so Chip is recruited. He agrees to join their ranks and to become a member of the high council. Now, the leader of the high council, the, the highest ranking person is a man named Wei, W-E-I, and they have a, of course, a climactic conversation. Um, and Wei explains to him that people cannot be trusted to make their own choices. Decisions should be made by the best and the brightest. And now Chip points out that, well, before the computer was created, people did achieve unification. They were able to make a one-world unified government. But here's what uh, the leader Wei says. He says, but after what a struggle and what a fragile structure the unification was until we buttressed it with treatments. No, the family has to be helped to full humanity by treatments today and by genetic engineering tomorrow, and decisions have to be made for it. Those who have the means and the intelligence have the duty as well. So he points out, yeah, they can't, they need, humanity needs to be guided into full humanity, into its full potential. And that's going to be through medical treatments, genetic engineering, and technology. And the computer is going to make this happen with the high council kind of guiding it. And even though, and Chip brings up the fact that people are killed at age 62, Wei says, well, that's best for the whole family. Um, it's more efficient. Collectively, they've gotten more years or man hours out of people that way than by letting people live a little bit longer. But exceptional members are allowed to live longer. Those who are very exceptional and, and very capable. And so humans can be perfected with Uni's help. And Wei says imperfections cannot be accepted. But there's only one goal, and that is perfection. A universe of gentle, helpful, loving, and unselfish people. Later on, come to find out that, that Wei um, he's, he's, not just, he's not just doing this because he wants to make humanity perfect. He has joy in doing it. He, has, he enjoys being in control of mankind. So that is uh, this perfect day. And so definitely out of time, kind of went, went a little long today, but I want to just bring about a summary of the points here that all of these um, books have overlapping themes. The idea that the people in general are uneducated and can't be trusted to make their own decisions, that there's always an elite group of people that knows better than everyone else, and information, knowledge must be controlled, truth must be controlled. All of these are variables that if you don't control them, the whole system falls apart. And the goal is some kind of perfection, a perfect society, a perfect humanity. So there's something wrong with human nature that must be controlled and perfected somehow. And the people, they can't just be coerced into conformity. They have to be convinced or changed um, so that they willingly uh, do this. And we see in all of this very, very spiritual themes um, where basically mankind or the government or this elite group of people is playing the role of God and that they're going to remake mankind in their own image instead of acknowledging that mankind is made in God's image. And they see humanity as flawed. We see them as sinful. Humanity is not inherently, when it was created, flawed. It is sinful. But these books, in these books, the good part of humanity is considered the flaw. And that has to be completely stamped out. Basically, the image of God has to be destroyed forever. And then 
humans will be perfect. Then we'll reach perfection and be able to achieve um, a utopian society. So it is very much a reversal or, or a polar opposite of the Christian message and how only God through the Holy Spirit can change hearts and minds and cause us to live according to our full potential as humans who are made in God's image. That can only be done through Christ and through the Spirit of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Christ is the Savior. Um, it's God who is redeeming the world and saving the world, not elite leaders with their plans and genetic engineering and control of knowledge and the truth. These themes we see exist uh, today. They're not just fiction. There have been times where people have tried to do this and, and, and remake the world in their own image and to try to build utopia. And I think we have to always be on the lookout for this tyrannical, totalitarian tendency, um, always done in the name of good, right? In all of these stories, uh, the villains believe they're doing the right thing and they're doing it for the, for the better of everybody. And so that is the motive of those kinds of people today. They think they're doing the right thing, but they're really going against God. That's what, that's what they're doing. So anyways, these are some things I, I hope that you'll think about and consider, especially as we consider its connection to the Tower of Babel and the attempt of mankind to make a name for itself. Anyways, if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, um, topics you want me to address that are related to this, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, please share the show with friends, coworkers, and family. Go to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can look for Governed by God and, and share the show there. And we'll continue with our series of tyranny next time. And until then, though, take care and God bless.